Welcome to Chasing Dramas. This is Karen. And this is Kathy. We're exploring Chinese history and culture through historical Chinese TV dramas. When thinking about which dramas we want to discuss for this podcast, we decided to focus on period dramas that represent certain eras in Chinese history. We also wanted to choose ones that were very well done in terms of not only the story and acting, but also the clothing, the hairstyles, the etiquette, the use of certain nomenclature, etc., so as to learn more about China. With that, which drama are we going to talk about? It's none other than Hou Gong Zhen Huan Zhuan, or Empresses in the Palace. It is a drama that is set in the Qing Dynasty during the mid-18th century under the reign of Emperor Yongzheng. He is the fifth emperor of the Qing Dynasty. This drama follows the trials and tribulations of a woman named Zhen Huan as she enters and matures in the imperial harem as a concubine of Yongzheng. This drama came out in 2011 and was a massive hit in China. It stars Sun Li as the title character, Zhen Huan, Chen Jianbin as the emperor, Tai Shaofen as the empress, Jiang Xin as another consort in the palace named Hua Fei, and many others. Due to the popularity of this show, it catapulted many of these actors and actresses to the A-list status. The show received numerous awards for Best Directing, Best Acting, and Best Production. I myself have watched this drama in its entirety multiple times, and with each viewing, learn something new. It was the first mainland drama, I think, to really explain a lot of the intricacies of the imperial harem that was also very well done. And because it was so popular, many other dramas today are able to build upon this knowledge and rarely have to re-explain, for example, the ranking system, the dishu system, etc., which we will discuss throughout the drama because they take for granted that we have already probably watched Hougong Zhen Huan Zhuan. The drama is based off a book by Liu Lianzi. For those of you that want to watch and follow along, it is currently available on YouTube. There is actually a six-episode condensed version of the show created for Western audiences, and it is available currently on Amazon Prime with English subtitles in the U.S., and it might be available on Netflix in other regions. We'll stick to the original because there's just so much more to discuss. And quite honestly, some of the translations are not that great. This drama has a total of 76 episodes, each 45 minutes long. How this will work in our shows is that for each podcast episode, we will provide a brief recap around five minutes or so of the events that happened in the drama episode. Then we will dive more deeply into a few key scenes which either has cultural historical significance or is significant to the plot. The episode serves as an intro episode with general background knowledge of the time setting and cultural norms of this series. So for those of you who don't know anything about the Qing Dynasty, this will help provide some more context and background information. A mini history lesson, if you will. I will say that when doing research for this podcast, we also realize how um, different this is uh, by at least today's and Western standards. So it should be interesting to say the least if you have no background on this at all. And with that, welcome to Chasing Dramas.
We are so excited for you to join us for our first series. We look forward to discussing episode one of Hou Gong Zhen Huan Zhuan. Next is going to be the general history for this show. If you would like to skip this, please proceed to episode one of our podcast. Now let's talk about some Chinese history. The drama takes place during the Qing Dynasty, or at the time it is called Da Qing. The Qing Dynasty was founded by the Manchu Aixinjiro or Aixinjiluo in Mandarin clan in 1632 and ruled China from 1644 to 1912. It is the last imperial dynasty to rule China. There is a lot to discuss for each dynasty and each emperor, but for the purposes of this drama, one important item to note is that the Manchu Aixinjiro clan is not Han Chinese. The Manchu were from northern China and were militaristic, well-versed on horseback, and had close ties to the Mongolians. In present day, Manchu is the second largest minority in China, and according to the 2010 census, there are over 10 million Manchu living in China. They have their own written and spoken language, and many still live in the Dongbei province in China. Qing Dynasty rule is actually very easy to visually distinguish in Chinese history, primarily because of the different fashion and hairstyles for both men and women. It was more obvious for men because men were required to have the Q hairstyle, which basically meant having a long braid at the back of the head while the front half of the head was shaved. The Han hairstyle required simply a bun at the top of the head, no shaving required. Just think of Disney's Mulan. Mulan put her hair up in a bun and was able to go off and join the army. That bun hairstyle was Han. The half-shaved head with the long braid is Manchu. There was actually quite a lot of drama surrounding this hairstyle. Generally, Han people didn't cut their hair, so shaving part of the head was not very welcome. Han people also didn't want to conform to this new look because it meant relinquishing the identity of a Han person. That hairstyle has been around since the days of Confucius, some 2,000 plus years ago. People were actually massacred for not shaving their heads by the Qing officials. The change of adopting this new Q hairstyle was actually a slow and quite bloody process. On a lighter note, though, in present day, when you see a Chinese actor with a newly shaved head, you know, during interviews or on an entertainment show, generally you can guess that he's acting in a Qing Dynasty drama. Another key distinction between the Han and Manchu was the clothing. Han clothing, if you can imagine again Disney's Mulan, was generally more like a wrap dress where you wrap the clothes around you. That's how I like to think of them at least. Obviously, there were some stylistic differences across the dynasties, but I think generally Han dress had this characteristic. Manchu dress, which was called Tijuang, was much more distinct. They have high collars and a unique button style. You see these clothes a lot in quote-unquote traditional Chinese stores, so next time you see them, you'll know that this is actually more Manchu than Han Chinese. Foot binding also became more ubiquitous during this dynasty, which basically meant that women of a certain status had their feet bound from a very young age. 
it was an incredibly painful process because it basically prevented bones from growing properly. And that means walking was limited. This is why having your feet bound was actually a status symbol. A woman with bound feet couldn't really work fields or do manual labor. She pretty much had to have servants do all of those things for her, which meant that she was wealthy enough to have these servants. Shockingly, this practice was actually only banned in 1912 with the fall of the Qing Dynasty. And the Chinese Communist Party in later years actually had to do additional work to stamp this practice out. For context, I would say that people's great-grandparents' generation would have probably had their feet bound. Some other key aspects of this dynasty. We want to point out that the transition from the Ming Dynasty to the Qing Dynasty was extremely bloody. The Qing Dynasty is significant for not only being the last imperial dynasty in China, but also one of the two major dynasties in Chinese history that is not ruled by ethnically Han people. The other is the Yuan Dynasty, ruled by the Mongolians. What is interesting about the Qing Dynasty is that the Manchu opted not to decimate the entire Han population and culture, but instead decided to integrate certain aspects of the Han culture into their own, such as language and writing. One example of this can be seen in the Forbidden Palace in Beijing even today. The gates and palace names are written in both Chinese and Manchu. However, there were still a lot of ethnic clashes during the Manchu conquest, so it's not like it was smooth sailing for either side. This Manchu and Han divide plays a key aspect to this drama, with the Manchurians always being cognizant of keeping power above the Han. This dynamic is something we will discuss throughout the show. Since this drama primarily focuses on women, let's discuss that aspect of society. The dynasties of China represented a feudal system. Chinese culture and society has historically been very patriarchal and conservative. There were strict rules on how women should behave going back to the days of Confucius some 2,500 years ago. He even wrote texts on what is expected for women behavior. Polygamy was the norm for people of wealth and stature. The man has only one quote-unquote wife who is his legitimate partner, but can have multiple concubines or consorts. The main reason for this is to ensure that the family lines continue. These themes and struggles for women in the society is key to this drama that we will be further exploring. Now that was some basic historical background. Kathy, what else should we know in preparation of this drama? The main setting of this drama is the Emperor's Harem, or Hougong. Though it means harem in English, the direct translation of the words is palace in the back. This contrasts with Tian Chao, which is the emperor's court in which he conducts his ruling affairs. The direct translation to those two words are front court. So you see, the emperor must manage two aspects of his life, the court for ruling and the harem for continuing his progeny. There is a clear delineation of his roles and, of course, the role of women. The concept of hougong, as we see, is extremely interesting. Maintaining the purity of the royal bloodline and having as many children as possible is seen as the primary duty of the emperor. The women that reside in the hougong place their fortunes on how many children she can have for the emperor and how successful these children are. 
However, another aspect we will see repeatedly in the show is that winning favors with the emperor as a woman is crucial to diplomatic strategy. Women are sent to the emperor by family members to ensure closer ties amongst the two parties, and the emperor will accept women to ensure those family members respect his authority. To ensure the purity of the bloodline, there is literally only one man in the Hokong. The men that serve the consorts or concubines are all eunuchs. For those that don't know, eunuchs are typically castrated at a young age and they grow up in the palace to serve the members of the court. The only other real men allowed in Hokong are imperial doctors and palace guards. It is generally restricted for other men, even family, to see concubines in Hokong. The concubines must maintain a level of separation with almost everyone she sees that's not the emperor. Eunuchs have been employed by the imperial households for thousands of years. They were very quintessential to palace life, and although they obviously cannot bother children, many of these eunuchs became incredibly powerful figures in court because of their close connections to the royal family. For background on how all of this works in the Hokong and how uh, the emperor selects women is pretty much every night, palace eunuchs from Qingshifang comes to the emperor's study with the names of each concubine on a tray. The emperor will then flip the card of the name of the woman he wishes to spend the night with. When that happens, the selected lady is, wait for it, pretty much undressed, rolled up in a comforter, placed in a special carriage sometimes, otherwise they're just pretty much lugged on the shoulders of eunuchs, and brought to the emperor's quarters. And this carriage is a special carriage so that everybody knows who's spending the night. Obviously, things change here and there. The emperor can decide to visit the palace quarters of whichever lady lives there. But this is the general gist. Women are pretty much hand-delivered to the bed of the emperor. Every woman the emperor spends his time with is recorded by Qing Shifang eunuchs to make sure they know exactly when a child is conceived to again ensure the purity of the bloodline. So you've successfully found yourself on the emperor's bed. What's next? Well, you need to be given a rank. And in Hogong, there is a strict ranking system. Your rank depends on a number of factors. Your age, your favoritism with the emperor, the number of children you have, and your family connections. You must be appointed the rank by either the emperor, the empress dowager, or the empress. This is also described in the drama, but generally, you have one empress, or Huang Ho, that rules the harem on behalf of the emperor. She is what is considered the main wife. Every other woman is, or supposed to be, subservient to her. She has special privileges, as we'll mention throughout the show, that make her special. There is normally a Huang Guifei, the imperial noble consort, and then the next rank is Guifei, the noble consort. Four women make up the following rank, Feizi, or consort, and the next tier is Pin, imperial concubine. Of the above ranks, already confused yet, you're able to have your own or at least control your own palace quarters. You can refer to yourself as Ben Gong, which means owner of a palace, and servants will address you as 
娘娘。For any rank below those, you must live with and listen to the Fei or Pin who runs the palace apartment. Of course, if you are asked to live elsewhere, you must do so. Below Pin in this drama are Guiren, noble lady; Chang Zai, first class female attendant; Da Ying, second class female attendant. The lowest rank is a Guan Nuzi or a chosen maid, and she is typically a female servant or maid whom the emperor has taken a liking to and has chosen to take her to bed. Servants will address you as Xiao Zhu or Little Master. These are the ranks and titles in the Qing Dynasty. Other dynasties will have different names and ranks. Women are not only sent from families, but typically every three years or so, there is a selection process where women from all over the country are sent and assessed as to whether or not she can be a concubine in the imperial harem. This practice has also been around for millennia. Part of the reason this is done so frequently is to ensure, again, that there is a healthy line of offspring. As we'll also see in the drama, people's lifespans, especially women, are very short. They die of illness or of childbirth or of the drama that occurs in the palace, so people need to be continuously replaced. Additionally, sometimes servant girls will catch the eye of the emperor. We'll see this as well. Many try to seduce the emperor, but this is dangerous and could result in death from jealousy of another consort or by the emperor himself if he ever gets tired of you. However, if successful, these servant women often turn from servant to owner. That is how they improve their own careers. Several women have become incredibly powerful through this route. I also want to highlight titles and names, just so people aren't confused. We may alternate how characters are addressed. Generally, people have their given names and then their given titles. It's the same in English. You have the Duke of Cambridge, but his name is William. In Chinese history, for the harem, you are generally called the rank plus your last name, unless formally given a title by the emperor. So, for example, if I am a consort with the rank of Fei and my last name is An, I will be called An Fei. But if I am given a title, for example, De, I will be referred to as De Fate. I hope that makes sense. And with that, I think we are ready to start watching and analyzing Hou Gong Zhen Huan Zhuan. Of course, this is only a small snippet of information about the Qing Dynasty and Chinese history in general, but hopefully, will give you enough context for what is happening in the show. Thank you for listening. Please join us for episode one. Of chasing dramas.